It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. It's another edition of Make the Dough Rise. Walter Storlt here alongside Brian Doe and some special guests on today's show. Brian, as you know, is a certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors, serving the Lake Country and beyond with an office in Greensboro, Georgia. And you can find us online for past episodes and more information at livingworth.com. And joining us on today's show for a revisit to our panel discussions that we had Back in 2021, in April and May of that year, I'm talking about episodes 45 and 47, we had Jamal Mahmood and Mike Minter uh, join us on those programs for a great roundtable panel discussion where we talked about inflation and stimulus packages and modern monetary theory, and it was just awesome to hear you guys go back and forth. And wouldn't you know it, that conversation uh, was uh, definitely timely as over the last 18 months or so, indeed, we have experienced inflation and seen quite a bit happen in our economy and in the financial markets all across the landscape. And so we are going to revisit those conversations, talking more about debt, inflation, and what to come, a look back, a look forward. I'm going to let Brian set the stage and the table for you a little bit more in depth here in a moment. But if you're new and you haven't heard uh, from Mike and Jamal before, you know, Mike is one of the founding members of Main Street Financial Solutions, a 20-year veteran. And then Jamal, of course, returned guests not only from those episodes, but also joined us earlier on in the podcast in episodes 26 and 27. He's the director of insurance of Main Street Financial Solutions as well. And uh, so we've got the whole team here today, Brian, Mike, and Jamal. And Brian, I'm just going to turn it over to you. I'm going to sit back, relax, and enjoy your guys' conversation today about uh, all that's to come. Yeah, sounds good. And you use the word revisit. I, I got a feeling as we prepared for this, this might be more of a rematch. You know, one of the great, uh, you know, revisits to this because a lot of what has happened in, in just 18 months has, has really validated some of the points that Mike was making. Uh, I've gone back and listened to the past podcast. And if you, if you haven't heard episode 45, really go back and listen to it because everything that was talked about in there was interesting, timely, uh, you know, some very good points made on both sides. But very quickly, like I said, 18 months, 20, 19 months later, the landscape has changed dramatically. And so we're gonna, we are going to go back and revisit and, and talk about some of the concepts of modern monetary theory, uh, inflation, what does that mean? How does that impact us? And you know, what do we do about it as you know, advisors for our clients? And, and what can the Federal Reserve and the government and all the, all the big players do to get things back under control? Now, everybody, of course, knows how Brian's voice sounds from being on every episode here. But uh, luckily, Mike and Jamal, you guys don't sound similar. You have nice, distinct voices. So uh, I want to make sure everybody listening knows who's speaking throughout the show. So let's introduce you along with your voices now uh, so that people can have an idea of uh, you know who is who as we approach uh, this conversation today. Mike, I hope you are doing well, my friend. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Walter. Glad to be here. Looking forward to your thoughts, opinions uh, today, as well as Jamal's. And Jamal, um, have enjoyed working with you and having you on. You're now like episode. This is like the fifth one you've been on. So you're you're kind of a you know an, an old an old salt at this. Uh, congrats. I'm a I'm a bit of a veteran. Yes, thank you very much. Well, th- thanks Walter, Brian, and Mike. Nice to be here as well. Thanks. A veteran presence, no doubt about it. So very good. Well, as we're reflecting on uh, inflation today, Jamal, and and what that means. I think 
Mike and I would look back on everything that has happened over the last 18 months. Obviously, the pandemic arrived a little bit before that, but the response to it has been you know, massive money printing. Uh, we've also had a number of uh, legislative actions that have you know, spent on infrastructure, or they called it the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which I would argue is not going to do anything to reduce inflation. They've done you know, student loan forgiveness. Lots of spending and uh, you know, money to Ukraine, you know, tens of billions of dollars here and there. So uh, let me just open it up and say, you know, what's going on? What's caused this, in your opinion? And uh, is the the culprit something that we can actually, you know, get back in the bag and, and get this under control? In terms of what's going on, so clearly we've had, uh, you know, all of those uh, those uh, stimulus bills and things like that that have come up, and you know. Th- since COVID and uh, the uh, Biden administration's uh, new initiatives and things like that, I think that it's hard to argue that that didn't tip things a little bit over the edge. And I don't think that the intention was to have uh, inflation at this scale. And I think people have realized it at this point. And uh, it's a national priority to try to get it under control. The thing that modern monetary theory has to really offer uh, to the debate, though, is that in general, because we do control our own money supply, uh, we shouldn't be quite as hesitant to spend money on things that are nationally necessary. So uh, that doesn't mean that we don't care about inflation. Uh, It just means that inflation is maybe a more of a secondary consideration uh, to things that uh, maybe if we didn't spend on them, they would have actual consequences. And if you think back to COVID, it's a great example. Like, yes, did we bomb the country with uh, a bunch of dollars in the street at that point? We did. And that may uh, in fact, be you know may have contributed uh, to inflation, probably was part of it. Um, but the consequence of not doing that uh, could have been that you would have had massive uh, unemployment. Uh, we were you know at one point I think it was like fifteen to twenty percent or something like that. That has real consequences for real people. And the other thing is that some of those issues can become structurally kind of baked into the cake where people, if they're unemployed for too long, uh, then they become chronically unemployed. Uh, families break up, people fall behind in in education, they lose their homes and things like that. Uh, so that's what we were really trying to uh, counter. And the inflation in this case is uh, one of the consequences. And uh, it's obviously not something we like, but we prefer it to the alternative. That's the first thing. Second mm-hmm. thing is, uh, it's not always the case that inflation is just created by, well, we've put too much money in the system and that's uh, automatically what's made it go up. If that was the case, we would have had an inflation probably for the last 40 years uh, because we've been running deficits and spending too much money. And people like, uh, I'll, I'll pick on my colleague Mike over there, people like Mike and other people who have uh, been on top of the deficit, they've been talking about the deficit being too large and being on the cusp of creating inflation since the, uh, since the 1980s. And it hasn't happened. Why? Just because you run those deficits, it doesn't mean that all of that money necessarily pours into the system and A plus B, it causes inflation. I think what's caused it in this case is a uh, supply chain glut because that can create an issue also. If you've got money in the system, but all of a sudden you have supply that is restricted because of maybe everybody is working from home, everybody's adjusting to new technology, people are getting COVID and they're being out for two weeks and things like that. There's a lot of change and people are not not able to adapt. Everything gets slower, 
things aren't being able to, you know, things aren't ending up on the shelves, things aren't getting created as much. And that does create a situation where where uh, where prices rise. It's more complicated, is the bottom line, than uh, just we printed too much money and now we've got egg on our faces. Mm-hmm. And I would agree, we definitely avoided a disaster and that was necessary. But at some point, well, you factor in all the variables of, of the supply chain, you know, supply shock, people not working through COVID. It's, it's definitely a, a multivariate issue. But um, I worry about our ability to respond to the to the next crisis. And that's the problem I have. We do these things and we continue to do it. And now inflation's here and we have to reverse policies when we've basically had a free money, zero interest rate environment for so long that there is so much more debt in the system. I mean, even if we go back and listen to the episode 47, maybe it was 45, Brian, where you talk about the U.S. government having $28 trillion in debt, you know, now we're at $31 trillion. Um, mm-hmm. And now we're going to start raising interest rates to 4% or even higher. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford it. I mean, this is the, you, you can't do the types of things that we've been doing. And then inflation gets here and you think you can just reverse you know, the policies that, that, that we've basically been doing for the past 14 years and everything's going to be okay. We had the financial crisis in 08 because people were taking on too much, buying houses they couldn't afford. We have more mortgage debt today than we did back then. And forget mortgage debt, you go into any other area of debt and it's exploded. It's exploded for our government. It's exploded for corporations, municipalities. It's uh, even Mike, the consumer. Mike, what happens to debt, consumer debt, when inflation happens? Well, it's it's good because you can inflate your way out of the debt. And this is there why you go. over the long term- There you term, go. That's why they wanted some inflation. Yeah. But Jamal, there's half the country that doesn't own any assets. You can't run your economy like this. It's okay for right now, even though people are frustrated. If it continues, it is not going to be good. People are going to get very upset. You can't. And yeah, you can't have to it, be. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You can't have this continue. This, this, this can't continue this way, and I, I would argue it's not going to. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I agree with you. No, yeah, and that's. Uh, I, but the problem is, if you try to stop it. And you reverse policies like we're trying to do right now. We already kind of see what, you know, how the market sold off. We already see interest rates going higher. And we have all of this debt in the system with interest rates going up as quickly as they're going up right now. My fear is something is going to break at some point. And maybe it doesn't happen, but even if it doesn't, I don't see how we can continue down this path with how much debt we just have nationally. Uh, so, well, and, and Mike, you've, you've got the issue of, of debt service, and I think that's that's kind of what we're trying to tease out here. If the government's already deficit spending, and now the interest rate on thirty-one trillion dollars worth of debt obviously doesn't all reset right away, but if your de- debt service has gone from one or two percent up to four or five percent, that's a huge line item for for the federal budget. And you see people, and this has not just happened in the US because uh, I know up in Canada, Trudeau was on 
question by a reporter and he says, oh, but interest rates are so low right now. We can just borrow all the money we want. Uh, basically, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But you know, now, now you're looking at servicing that debt without a plan or a strategy to reduce it or eliminate it. That's going to be a huge budget strain. You just to service so, the debt going forward. So this is a good time for me to remind everybody of an important fundamental tenet of modern monetary theory. And again, I'm not saying that this is something I buy into 100%. I'm not an expert in it, but I'm here representing that philosophy. So let me lay it out there. So at least we understand what we're, what we're dealing with. MMT clearly says that a country that controls its own currency doesn't have to worry as much about deficit spending and debt. Okay. We don't have to pay that debt back anytime soon, probably ever. Like, I mean, that that's, that's, we can float that debt for quite a while. Right. And as I said to you, Brian, yesterday on, uh, when we were pre preparing for this, um, you know, nothing goes on forever, right? Uh, there, there's gonna, every monetary system comes to an end, but it's a big difference whether it's going to come to an end in two years or 20 years or 200 years. And knowing mm. that if we knew that it would make a big difference, uh, to us and our clients. But again, I know I've, there have been people who have been predicting doom for this since I was a kid uh, in the 80s, and it's still the same people who are saying, oh, the debt is this, the debt is that. Our debt to GDP ratio is not at its highest point. You know, it was its highest after World War II, and that kicked off a period of tremendous expansion uh, for the United States. So uh, it's certainly not a foregone conclusion that just because we have a high debt, 30 trillion of debt, that that means that we're at the precipice of some sort of a, a, a decline. Well, and, and the, oh, the latest number I've, yeah. I've seen, Jamal, is, is we're, at, we're at 127% debt to GDP, which I, I thought was a little bit higher than World War II. And we keep having you know continued crises, uh, Medicare spending, Social Security spending, all these things yeah. that we can't cut. There, there's, there's no way that we're going to go from a uh, war-type spending that the war ended and then we got on to a you know domestic boom and 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 prosperity period in the yeah 50s and 60s i don't see this ending but here but here's here's how the mechanics of it work as far as i'm uh, you know from my understanding as far as the so uh, i think both of you i heard you were concerned about well if interest rates rise what's that going to do to the service on the debt what's going to end up happening is that the federal reserve is going to keep buying treasury bonds. Okay. And they're going to, they're going to do that to keep interest rates low because if they do that, if they keep buying those bonds, uh, rates will stay low. We'll be able to keep, um, our debt, you know, we'll be able to keep our debt service manageable. Um, people are always worried. And I am also worried if people lose their appetite for, uh, us debt. And that, if that happened, that would be uh, a big issue. But at the moment, and what we've seen throughout this whole inflation crisis is that the U.S. dollar has gotten stronger. That's what we saw in the financial crisis. That, that's what we saw now is that the more things become a concern, the more people flock to buy U.S. dollar-denominated assets because it's yep. still the strongest and most trusted currency in the world. So we are, again, there may be a train coming, but that train is miles down the tracks. It is not, uh, it's not on our doorstep. But yeah, Mike, what why, speed why, is that train traveling? <laughs> right. And why why do we wanna why do we wanna set policies that we know is going to result in a train wreck down the road? It, it makes no sense. And if you say you're basically saying, well, the Fed can push down interest rates by buying more debt. I mean, we're we're doing quantitative tightening right now. So you're kind of proposing that we go back to quantitative easing. 
Well, they're going to have we, to. I mean, they're going to have to. Yeah, they are going to they're gonna have to. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, I agree. Yep, yep, they they're going to have to. Mm-hmm. And then uh, how how are we going to stop inflation from coming back at that point? So both of you were talking about policy reversals, right? So we have to reverse policy. That's all the Fed does. The entire history of the Fed is we raise interest rates, we lower interest rates. We raise interest rates, we lower interest rates. They're constantly reversing policies based on what's going on. Right now, inflation is a little higher than they expected. They're raising interest rates. That's good, kind of, because interest rates, again, Brian, you and I were discussing it yesterday. Two years ago, our problem was interest rates were too low and we didn't know how they were ever going to get up and off the floor. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, now we have people are able to earn a, you know, some money on their savings accounts. It's better for financial institutions. It's better for savers. Interest rates are more normal now. And we have a little bit of what's it called, ammunition in the tank in case we need to lower interest rates again, in case we need something for uh, for, for stimulus. So, you know, it's not a big deal that they have to uh, reverse course. They're backpedaling more than they wanted to in this situation, but I just don't see this as being at the end of the world. Well, I do agree with you on the raising and lowering of interest rates, but I would argue with you that buying treasuries is quantitative easing and that results in money printing which we haven't done except since the financial crisis. Even if we are talking about just lowering and raising interest rates, since we got out of quantitative easing and we weren't buying our treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities anymore, that the Fed has been playing catch-up. The market has moved. Interest rates were going higher before they started raising interest rates. So when we're talking about people losing the appetite for our debt in this country, it is happening. That's why interest rates have been going up. And the Fed is basically, like I was just saying, playing catch up to this point. Is, is that true? I don't know if that's true. I feel like the the Fed has been leading the charge of uh, interest rates going higher. I didn't, I, I had, I mean, I could be wrong, but I hadn't seen that now, uh, yeah. interest I, rates had, uh, you know, the horse had left the barn there. I they were trying to look at the charts of the two year, the two mm-hmm. year treasury. You see it take off and the Fed's been playing catch up ever since. I see. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that, and, that, and, that, is, th- that is a warning sign. I agree with that. And I don't know if, uh, if this has a, a huge impact on it, but I noticed that China's holdings, you talk about appetite for U.S. treasuries, China's holdings of U.S. Treasuries has dropped about 30% over the last couple of years. Uh, so I don't know if they're deliberately selling them off or if they have a, a need for cash over there, if they're buying other assets like gold with it. But there is some concern when you see a major holder like that trimming their treasury position you know, by a big, yeah. big degree. From a macroeconomic point of view, that could just be China finally shifting to spending some money on its own population as opposed to just... Uh, uh, exporting because for, exporting, again, yeah. That, uh, yeah, that's the other thing for the last 30 years, I feel like China has been, um, you know, a big, uh, saving country, uh, but they haven't been spending. Um, so again, that's a natural shift, uh, that could be, could eventually be good, uh, for the United States. Um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they come and become, kind of, it was kind of like Japan's playbook. They're just big export yep. economy. Then eventually they have to start yep. buying stuff yep. back. Yep. You can only do that for, for it, so long. It would definitely be a concern if people stopped buying United States debt, it would definitely be a concern if we couldn't do that anymore. MMT and my understanding is basically just that uh, we've got, we've just got a lot much, we've got a lot more slack in the rope. Um, that's uh, really the bottom line. Well, in, in j- just an empirical observation, my clients, I've had several people ask me about buying treasuries because you, you can get a 4% or so yield on a, on a tenure right now. That's looking yeah. very attractive. So there, there is a lot of movement 
out of stocks, out of cash. Uh, there you go. Your clients, Brian, your clients are lending money to the government. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> That's true. We just have some headwinds moving forward. And what I mean by that is we're still running deficits of over a trillion dollars. Um, at least we're not running three trillion ones anymore. Um, but we also have a Fed that is doing quantitative tightening of 95 billion a month, even though mm -hmm. it's not really reflected in the balance sheet reduction because I keep checking it. But annualized, that would be another trillion. So what that means is not only do we have another trillion dollars plus that we need to find buyers for of treasuries with the Fed no longer doing it, who's been the biggest player in the market, but now we have quantitative tightening where we have an additional trillion dollars annualized if they continue with quantitative tightening that people are going to have to buy. So, you know, I'm not saying interest rates have to shoot up tomorrow or next month, but they have gradually gone higher and it could continue. Deficit spending ideally is supposed to be cyclical as opposed to uh, a constant, right? So if we're annoyed, you know, if we're annoyed at deficits, right? So MMT, frankly, doesn't mind deficits. But uh, if we're annoyed at deficits, we should be annoyed at the presidents who, who run deficits when the economy is scorching hot, not the ones who run deficits when uh, we're trying to climb our way out of a black hole of an economy. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say we're stretched fairly thin right now, being 127% debt to GDP, we needed to rescue ourselves from the financial crisis. We needed to rescue ourselves Does anybody, from COVID. Yeah. Does anybody know what it was after World War II? Can, can we look that 100%. up? 100%. It, it was about 100%. Was it 100? Yep. I mm -hmm. thought it was 200. Okay. Right. No. J Japan's okay. so at are we 200 at the high, or so right now, but we, yeah, we were 100% post-World War II. So are we at the highest point? Uh, are we at the highest point ever? Debt to GDP? That's my, that's my understanding. Unless you went way, way okay. back, maybe during the founding of the country or something like that. There no, 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 no. World War. Well, there wasn't, it wasn't that bad back then, but, uh, but World War, World War II was definitely the modern peak. Uh, yeah. I, I think World War II now. was, yeah, yeah was, was the last century's peak. And uh, mm -hmm. when we hit a hundred percent, everybody was saying, you know, we're now at World War II, post-World War II levels of debt. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's since crept up to 127%. Maybe the economy slowed down a little bit. The, debt's, the, the debt has picked up. So we're, mm -hmm. we're at that rate. And like I said, Japan's running about uh, 200%. So I, I know we can go higher, but uh, you know, should, shouldn't we lay this at the blame of the, uh, the people in charge, specifically the president? Well, so as we were talking yesterday, I don't think, uh, I certainly, it certainly does look like um, the Biden administration, uh, their latest initiatives, timed as they were, seemed to be the uh, the thing that pushed things over the edge. But I was, you know, I, frankly, when people get uh, annoyed at the Biden administration, my reaction is, well, I don't understand why they're not looking more at uh, the former guy, <laughs> the guy who was there, uh, uh, as, the as we like to call him. Guy before the former guy. Yeah, well, the guy but you know the what? Former, former guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that's true. Well, that's true, right? But, but you know what? So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of these people. I'm kind of in the middle politically, but uh, I certainly look at things, and I'm like, it, it, it does look to me like uh, Democratic presidents kind of come in and have to bail, uh, bail people out or bail the country out of uh, crises, right? And when you're bailing the country out of crises, classical Keynesian economics is you deficit spend because that's how you get 
people out of a Great Depression, out of a Great Recession and so forth. That's what Obama did. Uh, That's what uh, Biden had to do. And frankly, that's what Trump had to do at the end of his administration. The thing that didn't make any sense to me was uh, how uh, Trump inherited a very good economy uh, by the, you know, by the end of the Obama years, things had finally turned around. Trump inherited a very good economy, but wanted to put the pedal to the metal. Tax cuts, was uh, yelling at Jay Powell to to lower interest rates constantly uh, and uh, just wanted to keep juicing the economy up. Well, that's how you get inflation. That's that's where that comes from. And, and, and I know? think you could say that the, the almost the exact same scenario, roughly, about George Bush. You know, we, we did have that surplus in yeah. the late 90s, yeah, yeah. kind of by accident. I think the economy was just so hot that it even slipped up on them. But then mm-hmm. they took that surplus and just immediately greenlit every bit of spending in the the planet plus wars and and so yeah mm-hmm. we we've, we've been deficit spending for what 40 yep. 45 years now yep and this is and this is where we can finally agree on something jamal but i i agree with mm-hmm. you 100% it's definitely been both parties and uh this is where you know are we at that point right now where we've gone too far and we need to stop doing what we're doing. I mean, we have a Fed that kind of realizes that they need to reverse, but we still have a government that loves to spend. You know, we have- w- we have Would two- you like to see a balanced budget? What, 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 what would your ideal situation be? I mean, if we're going to run a healthy economy, yes, we have to we have to balance the budget at some point. We can't so- continue doing the things that we're doing now. Yeah, I'm going to agree with but Mike if, on that one. I, I would, if we deficit spend for a few years and try and get ourselves out of a hole, uh, I think we need a few years of now reducing that debt, letting the economy, you know, be healthy and you know generate tax so you, revenue you, or whatever you, it does, and, and so that we. So look, look what's happening in Ukraine. You know, we're we're saber rattling over there with uh, Russia right now, and there looks like they're going to be escalating there. What if we did end up in a major war and we needed to you know do something like we did in World War II? Can we handle that at 127% debt to GDP? Why is there, so I, I asked you this question yesterday, uh, uh, Brian, why is there always money for war? There's always well, money for war because when you really have to do it, you can print the money. You well, can, but- You can, but but can you if, if you're stretched as thin as we are now? Right. And that yeah. doesn't mean that there's not going to be consequences because of it. Yes, we can print more money mm-hmm. to to buy more arms, but it also could mean that inflation goes to 15 to 20% for the people in our country trying to live. The issue with, and this is where I was agreeing with you, is, you know, yes, Republicans and Democrats continue to do this, but it was almost like, why wouldn't they, right? If we can continue to deficit spend, and we have yeah. a Fed that's buying our debt and pushing interest rates to zero, and we're not really getting that much inflation and everybody's getting richer. I mean, talk about the ideal scenario, right? Why wouldn't you do that as long as possible? And believe me, our politicians have been. And now here we are to where, you know, the Fed at least has recognized, all right, mm-hmm. we need to, we need to kind of turn things around here. But we have two counter forces right now because our government is still out there spending and canceling debts. Yep. And yep, every time you turn around. My issue is just at this point, I don't know what we're going to do to get out of this without there being a lot of pain. And I don't think politicians or people at the Fed are willing to let 
our country go through some pain and they're going to reverse course and we're going to over the long term have to inflate our way out of this i just want to make one more point because yeah. i did bring up deflation in uh the segments that we did before and my only point with deflation was as you try to reverse these policies like we're doing right now at least from the federal reserve we're already seeing some things turn now i'm not sure if they're going to do it long enough to where we really do have a deflationary environment but as we reverse course we could quickly spiral into a deflationary environment especially if something were to break in the system but the fed is not going to let that happen and our government's not going to let that happen so you know we will go right back to the money printing policies and then they'll, to they'll reverse course out. the other way they'll they'll reverse course the other way exactly let me let me let me put it to you this way so if you were mike if you imagine you you were a speaker of the house right i tell me tell me if i'm right here you would so you would seek a a balanced budget amendment, right? And you'd want to have a situation where the government for a couple of years didn't, and, and Brian too, I put you in this camp. You would want a situation where the government did not spend more money than it took in in tax revenue. And in fact, took in more in tax revenues uh, than, it, uh, than it spent for a couple of years. That would make you guys happy. If we're sitting on a $31 trillion debt, paying off a little bit of that, yes. Mm -hmm. If you had okay. a situation with no debt, I, I don't see the government stacking up surplus cash and, okay. and setting up a yeah. savings account but uh yeah, so that, so that, just i just feel like where we're at now is is a little bit overburdened and yeah. is probably causing some distortions in the system like mike uh, has has pointed out and i just think it'd be better to have it closer to you know something normal than just keep yeah. how long can we just keep pushing the so, debt up well right so the, go to the more debt we have the less the less options we have moving forward For, for the benefit, so for so again, relating it to how our listeners ought to think about this, because again, everybody, everybody who's listening to this is ultimately probably maybe not us. We like the academia of this, but uh, I think a lot of people are listening to this. Well, what does that mean for what do I do with my investments and so forth? I would just say what you know, if something like that happens, my my understanding of it is if we have some sort of a situation where we have forced austerity, if we somehow get you know, not to pick on you guys, but if you guys become Speaker of the House and you manage to uh, to get everyone to vote with you and you get uh, you get these balanced budgets for a couple of years, I think that would push us into a crushing recession because then we're pulling more money out of the economy from taxes than the government is actually spending money, you know, and putting back into the streets. And mm -hmm. that, you know, pull, sucking money out, right? That's what, that's what, why people complain about Walmart going into all of these rural communities. They go in there, people spend their money there, and it gets sucked up and sent over into to, to Bentonville, right? That's mm -hmm. what the government would be doing in that situation. My argument and what MMT's argument would be, you, you let the debt, don't worry about the debt, right? But what you do have to do is you have to make sure that when you're deficit spending, you keep deficit spending, but what you got to do is you have to make sure that as the money is spent into the economy, it's put to good use, and it's spent on things that are going to actually put people more to work uh, and improve lives and improve the real wealth of the people. That grows GDP, right? And we and what I hope, what my vision of the future is, is that in 10 years, Mike, right, we've got a debt of 40 trillion, but we've got a, excuse me, not 40, uh, 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 what are we at? Well, yeah. It'll be there in right. 10 years for sure. Yeah, right. right. 
but but, the, just but nothing, what I do want, there. right? But and I and I hope it is. But I hope the economy or the 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 debt to GDP ratio goes down. That's what we, we want to have the economy growing at a faster rate than the debt. That's right. Uh, what it's our not. thesis is for the moment. Right, it's you, not. Yeah. But in the long run, I think we have a better chance if we grow it with deficit spending than without. That at least that's a theory. So so, uh, so let, let me just and, pe- and people let me just add this one thing and pe- so um, people should understand that there is a there is a chance that just because the debt is you know is high it doesn't mean that that's the death knell of the economy. There's a whole host of people that think that, that ju- that's actually good for the economy. With the way things are going and with interest rates rising, we're really going to have to grow because we're continuing to run trillion dollar deficits. Now we're going to have uh, a lot higher debt servicing moving forward. I mean, we're we're just digging ourselves a hole that it's going to be very tough getting out of. And, and Jamal, you mentioned austerity, and obviously the United States economy is very different than the example I'm going to provide. But I believe it was during the financial crisis. A lot of the smaller countries, and the, the one I'm going to talk about is actually Trinidad and Tobago. They were running running around doing bailouts and you know restructuring loans and all that stuff for all these other countries. And Trinidad and Tobago said, "We're going to do austerity. We're, we're just going to suck this up, pay it off, you know, fortify the economy." And it was painful for a few years, for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah. once they got through it, they were they were in, in a much healthier, better position. Do they, they print their Do they print their own money? I don't think no. They do I, I know that's that's why I said it. Yeah, it's so not, it's, a bit, it's a completely different example then. Right. But but I'm just yeah. saying it, it. It's night night and day though. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> I think that it's dangerous thinking just because you can print your own currency that you can just continue to do what we've been doing, especially knowing history and that no currency survives. They all at some point blow up. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe there won't be one where they are fiscally responsible and it can last for a long time, but I would just... Yeah argue that the things that we're doing now, uh, when you look into history, are very similar to the start of when currencies started to blow up. And, and, and I think if we keep pushing it, the, the mess we could potentially get into would be so massive and so unfixable that, um, you know, that, that would be my concern. We, we just push this thing as far as we can because it's very easy to spend and say yes and and give handouts and 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 that i think is probably what happened during the covid with all the bailouts a lot of that money was just handed to people it wasn't really spent to generate new infrastructure or new technologies or any kind of innovations it was just handed out and um i'll tell you i got i my, my problem with that and the financial crisis is that they handed out a lot of money to uh wealthier folks and uh, didn't put it in from the bottom you know i don't know i mean it was a huge difference like for families you got like a check of like 600 bucks 1200 bucks or whatever businesses were getting 50,000 100,000 a million yes. you know it, that yes. that that to me was criminal well you made the point last time that if in if money you know printed money or uh government spending goes into non-productive hands the fact that it's mm. actually getting into the economy maybe the initial project the government spends on isn't you know some phenomenal success but somebody received that money and they're going to turn around yeah. and, and spend it and do things with it. So by your logic, what does that matter? Who got it? Uh, well, I, if if it starts at the top, right, this is almost like a reverse trickle down argument. If it starts at the top, then 
those are the people that kind of have leverage and it's probably going to continue to circulate for the most part at the top. They may pay some of it out in wages that trickles down to the bottom, uh, but for the most part, the corporations and the the uh, the wealthier folks are going to control wages. So they're going to, you know, it's a smaller amount that's going to trickle down. If you mm-hmm. pay it in at the bottom, people are going to be able to use it to pay their rent. They're going to be able to use it to buy groceries. And at least that stuff will trickle up. So the first, when money gets into the economy, that first spend, right, is almost a freebie. Once it's in there, everybody's got to earn it, you know? So yeah, that, um, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't really understand that. Yeah, but if this, if they had if they had created jobs, so looking at the bottom end of the, of the spectrum, you know, we're spent like I said, we're spending tens of uh, billions of dollars going, you know, pumping into Ukraine, no problem. But we have a bit of a housing shortage, uh, at, mm-hmm. certainly, and affordability at the bottom end of the spectrum. Why why aren't we just spending billions and billions of dollars to build affordable houses, or you know, which would give people jobs and uh, yeah, buy materials it, and things like that? It, that that seems like a far better solution than than just handing out trillions of dollars to anybody that you know, qualifies. The, the, I, I think that's just the, the problem with our political system is that it prioritizes the uh, urgent and loud things. Like I, I'm, I'm as supportive of, you know, helping the folks in Ukraine as anybody. But when you stand back and look at it, it's interesting how we can always find money for foreign interventions and wars uh, when it's, uh, you know, but then when it comes to helping uh, people uh, domestically who actually need it. It's like, well, we do it, but we don't have the money. I don't really, I don't really agree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the, there's, there's... the one thing I will say is the Fed's mindset with inflation has totally changed um, since the yes. financial crisis. They know what they were doing with quantitative easing and lowering interest rates. Ben Bernanke even came out and admitted they were trying to create a wealth effect. They wanted asset prices to go up. So people would Mm -hmm. feel wealthier and go out and spend money. But now that inflation's here, they look at it like, okay, well, we've been doing these policies for the past 14 years. The people with assets have done very well in this type of environment, but it's that 45% or so of the country that don't own any assets that you know we're going paycheck to paycheck and penning, yeah. paying their rents that are getting absolutely killed right now and the fed is saying we have to protect these people and if that means the wealthy are going to lose some of their gains over the last couple of years so be it that's kind of where we are right now now at some point if it gets too painful like i was saying i still think they're going to reverse course or if interest rates get too high, they're going to be forced to reverse course, or they continue to keep raising interest rates and something breaks, and then they're going to be forced to reverse course. So this is kind of the unintended consequences of doing this stuff for so long, but that's the situation we're in. And and, and Mike, to your point, there, there's several uh, asset managers and analysts that I follow, uh, Kathy Wood, Jeff Gunlock, Lou Navalier. A lot of those people are saying that we could actually end up in a deflationary cycle on the other side of this because and maybe the Fed's overreacting and, and tightening down too hard and people have been bumping up their inventories because of the supply chain issue and they've been overordering. They're outlining all these factors where this could flip very quickly to a deflationary and a reversal of the Fed action and it could be an absolute whipsaw in direction of, of what's happening now. 
I, I got to yeah. say that 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 that's not even second guessing. That's third guessing. That's that, that that's crazy to me. And and I so I just Mike, you mentioned Ben Bernanke. I just I just finished reading his Twenty uh, First Century Monetary Policy, and I found it very, you know, I found it interesting. Right, obviously understood some of it, didn't understand uh, some of it as well. But my thought, one of the thoughts that I came away with is this is a man who has spent. Uh, uh, dedicated his life to understanding uh, central banking and the economy and things like that. He won a, you know, he, he's, he's written award-winning papers on the Great Depression and all these things. Um, and all this man thinks about is inflation and interest rates and unemployment. Those are, that's basically all he talked about the entire book, right? So if we're talking about, well, now he, they've overdone it with regard to, uh, you know, and it was Bernanke and then it was Janet Yellen and then it was now it's Jay Powell. So they've overdone it with regard to inflation so that they could avoid deflation. And now Kathy Wood is worried that they're going to create deflation again. Well, personally, I think that, you know, the central bankers who are actually paid to uh, to watch these things, they're probably in a better position than to, to know when deflation is going to happen than Kathy Wood. And they... That's the whole reason they did this a couple of years ago. So if Kathy Wood is worried about deflation, um, then she should agree that the, 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 you know that it made sense to do this because that's why they did this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't follow Kathy Wood or necessarily believe that she knows, but at the end of the day, because we have so much debt, we don't have our, our only option over the long term. Even if we have little periods of deflation, we have to inflate our way out of it. Why I think it's so tough, though, is just because the central banks have proved that they can't control it. They can't They can't just get it at 2% and keep it there. It's a very tough thing that they're trying to do. And, you know, I, I, I wish them like- the best. I, I want us to be able to get through this. I just, I think, I think there's has to be pain at some point. Where where would you all like to see inflation? What do you think is a healthy inflation rate? I mean, I, I don't see why there needs to be inflation. I mean, I guess there has to be now because of all the debt. But I mean, price stability to me would just mean keeping Zero? the currency where it is. Yeah. Oh, God, no. And, oh, and no. I'll say why? The, why? No. That's why? terrible. You got to <laughs> have- Let me put my prediction in. Before you answer that, let me put my prediction in. And where I would like to see it is kind of where it, this isn't my economic theory that I've come up with. It's been tested in, uh, I think it was New Zealand. They ran some analysis on it. And 2% inflation seemed to be a number that was you know, people could live with, but it still yep. encouraged spending and investment because you, you wanted to you'd be able to keep up with inflation. It wasn't so high that it was crushing and demoralizing people in the economy. So 2% is my answer. So Yeah, I, I would say between 2 and 3% is ideal. And you don't freak out unless it goes over five. That's my, and, and, and the reason, and again, the reason is a, a little bit of inflation is how, number one, a little bit of inflation guards against deflation. Deflation is worse than inflation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it guard, it helps it, it. So it, it guards against uh, deflation and it erodes debts, which is a big problem that we have because we do live in a debt fueled monetary system. Um, everybody accumulates debt in the and one of the and and inflation is a little bit of a tailwind that helps make the debt not so bad and allows things to continue and it does encourage spending simple thing if you think something's going to be cheaper next year you're more likely to put it off if you think it's going to be more expensive then you're going to be like you know what let's buy it now that's good for the economy good for jobs good for everybody yeah but you know we're we're looking at deflation like it's so terrible if 
you know, you're one of the people in the 45% that don't own any assets. You want deflation. You no, want prices no, to no. be cheaper. No, no, but no. You don't? Yeah, but you don't no, want prices do, to be cheaper? You do, want prices, you do want prices to be cheaper, but but deflation is so bad for an economy. Then you're talking, I don't care uh, how cheap prices good. are. good? Inflation's good Mike, for an economy? I don't care. You can make you it, yes, moderate inflation is good for an economy. As far but as far as deflation is concerned, well, I don't care don't how cheap that. prices get. No, we don't at the moment. But I don't care I, I, if if I don't have a job, it doesn't matter how cheap things are, okay? A deflationary economy is a shrinking economy. I mean, nobody says that's good. Well, it's if if your dollar can last you more than in certain situations depending on your depending on your situation it, it it's not the worst thing in the world now is it good for people that have assets no is it good for the economy you're right probably not i'm just saying you know pick your poison deflation or inflation um, inflation it's two to three percent picking the, and the, the big thing about this is i think if, there, there are two sides <laughs> yeah there's two sides to every coin like our high uh, money market rates, good or bad. Well, if, if you're saving cash and you're earning more on it, uh, it's good. If you're borrowing, you want cheap mortgages. So there, there's always two sides to the coin, and there, there's going to be a winner and a you know loser, I guess, if you will, on each side. And and the challenge for us then is how do we translate this into a winning strategy for our clients? How do we protect them from uh, erosion of their purchasing power? You, you've got all those issues that uh, you just help helping put people on on the winning side of this. Well, the thing the thing that clients are going to want to know the most, I think, is what the people in charge are striving for, right? And so it's to know if things are off kilter or not. And I don't think that there's any doubt they are shooting for two to 3% inflation, right? So, or there's 2% is their target. As I mentioned yesterday, we were talking, they did make a strategic change to how they were doing their inflation targeting uh, two years ago or so, where they were going to allow it to float up a little bit. And that's one of the things that caused this is that it floated up too much. But if you get two to 3% inflation, nobody in charge is going to worry about that. And our clients shouldn't worry about it either. And uh, as far as deficits are concerned, if they get a little bit more controlled, I, you know, I think that's fair, reasonable for everybody to say, well, let's not let it get out of hand. But I think we should also be careful. What we wish we wish for a balanced budget uh, could be worse than uh, uh, a trillion and a half dollar deficit, or a two trillion dollar deficit, or three trillion, or whatever uh, whatever it is that they're uh, uh, they're doing. Um, and I think we should just keep <laughs> and, and, an open mind to how how what you think is necessary, what you think is going to be bad for you, isn't always bad for you. What you think is going to be good for you, isn't always good for you. Just remember that. Well, short term, you're right. Running deficits short term is is much better for the economy, but you know, you got to have people looking at the long term as well. As long as the economy grows faster than the deficits and the debt, that's all we want to see. And I'm I, saying I, that's I, going to be very <laughs> tough to do at this point. It is. I hope. I I'll say it again. I hope the debt grows fast and the economy grows faster. Yeah, that would be. You've yeah. got Kathy Wood saying there might be deflation. You've got other people saying we're headed towards stagflation, or do we end up in the Goldilocks economy and we get it just right? I think. It's going to be very tough to get it just right. I don't think uh, anybody's smart enough at this point with all the money that's been printed, with everything that's going on to be able to just get things at two to 3%. So that's why I can see bouts of both. Obviously we're in inflation right now. I could definitely see if we over tighten that it quickly goes into deflation, but 
again, once deflation gets here, uh, we'll probably panic and, and start doing things to create possibly even higher inflation than today. I hope that's not the case. We are the United States of America. I am you know, still staying optimistic that we're going to get through this. But unless we, you know, start getting a little bit more fiscally responsible, um, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be pain at some point and whether we can get things under control now and just deal with it for the long term, I think that's the best case scenario for us. Um, otherwise it, it's just going to be the next crisis later. Here's another question. You, Jamal? So let's say uh, a lot of people uh, have said that COVID uh, could happen again. There could be another similar pandemic or something like that, um, given uh, the way uh, everything is networked and the way pathogens work and things like that. So let's assume that at some point we have another pandemic. If that happens, COVID or worse, do you think our budget should constrain how much we spend on it? Are you asking me? No, both of you. I... I... I mean, it's a hypothetical that hopefully doesn't happen, but this again, just kind of goes back to where, where we are today. If we were in a much stronger fiscal position, then, you know, it wouldn't be as big of a deal to do the things that you probably would hope we would do in that type of environment. But it's getting to the point now where it's going to be bad if something like that happens again and you know we're we're throwing another 3 trillion 4 trillion a year to 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 try to fix it let me so i'm going to try i'm going to try a little harder to corner you okay uh let's imagine next year we have another pandemic okay and uh the new dr fauci well let me not use him since he's so polarizing let's say we get some so, you know, whoever, you know, who are the smartest people in the room get together and they say, you know what, it's going to cost us $5 trillion to to get everybody through this in the most, in the safest possible way, okay, to save the economy, to prevent, you know, uh, lots of death and misery and, and people getting thrown out of their homes, $5 trillion. And it's going to, and, and the central bankers come out and say, yeah, this is going to cause a little bit of inflation, but we'll get it under control afterwards. Do you, and you're in Congress, both of you. Do you vote for that five trillion, or do you say no? This is too much money. Yes or no? I answer. mean, th this is a yeah. This is a hypothetical. I mean, if you're talking about COVID, which you know right now is we're not seeing people go to the hospital like we were uh, with the initial strain. I mean, I, I would almost argue that it's getting kind of close to a common cold right now. So you know, now it would is. it have to be something else? Yeah. Are we going to have to do whatever we're going to have to do to get us out of that? Yeah. But so you, you'd vote for it. You'd vote for the bill. I, I would vote for it reluctantly. But if we had right. spent a few I, years I mean, shoring up the balance sheet and reducing okay. debt so that we were in a better position to do it. If, if, okay. if people are fine if people it. are dying all over the place, you, you, we're going to do what, whatever we're going to do. But it, let, yep. let, I, I'm going to I'm going to put it back to you. So. How about the way we handled this last one? So do you think it makes sense that we go through a pandemic and then we come out of it with asset prices way higher than they were than before the pandemic? I mean, don't you think when we go through a pandemic that it would be pretty bad and there would be some pain and prices would probably be a little bit lower and um, yes. we gradually work our way out of it? But because I give you, we overdid I, I give you it that. so much- I give you that. 
I give you that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it makes no I, the, sense to go through a pandemic and then have the stock market way higher I, than it was before the pandemic. The only caveat I would say there is that I think that um, the sentiment that they had was it would be better to err on the side of too much than too little uh, because the lesson they learned from the, the Great Recession uh, and frankly from the Great Depression is that they underdid it. In those cases, they underdid mm-hmm. it. In this one, they overdid it. And they they knew I would we would rather overdo it than underdo it. And they did overdo it. And they know it. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm optimistic on the economy, the country, technology, innovation. I, I think there's so much great stuff happening out there. I think we are going to go through a overdue and we've, you know, we've got this inflation. There's it, definitely going to be some pain from this for the next, say, year or two. But I think on the other side of it, as, as long as they don't just keep keep crushing us with this, uh, we'll end up in a, a position where the economy is growing. We will get some exponential growth. You know, so, so from that standpoint, I'm very optimistic about the long term. And I'm having to remind clients that the the money that we have in conservative assets are for short term to get you through the next you know three, five, seven, ten years, whatever it is that they need to feel comfortable. And their risk assets that we're investing for the long term, you know, we're looking at on five, 10, 15, you know, even 20 year time periods. Uh, when you factor in the fact that, you know, they don't need all of their money today. So we're going to have to ride through this. It's going to be unpleasant while we're doing it, selling off assets and incurring capital gains and you know, being in cash and missing out on dividends and interest and those type of things. It's it's not the the way to try to react to the short-term movements of the market and, and what's happening. There are some more opportunities out there now because treasuries are yielding 4%, you can get 3% on the savings account. Uh, you know, th- there's there's some appeal to some of those other assets now. So maybe there's some reconfiguring, uh, reducing of risk, maybe taking advantage of rates coming back down. But uh, long-term, I, I really do remain optimistic. I, I, th- I think things are going to be okay. I mean, bonds are a better deal now than they've been in about a decade. Mm-hmm. Handily. Yep. I'm with you, Brian. Um, optimistic. We are the United States of America. You know, we've had periods of uh, rough times and we always seem to get through it. I don't think this is going to be any different. I do think, though, that we, because of overdoing it, um, especially through COVID and even when we were printing before, that we did take away a lot of future returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think it's going to be a tough stretch. Uh, over the next five to seven years, but we'll, we'll get through it and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be all right. And, and let me ask you just a follow-up question to that, Mike. Do you think now is worse? Are we worse off now than we were in the middle of the financial crisis? As far as our fiscal position, I think we are worse off now, but I, I don't think that inflation being here is such uh, a, a bad thing because it's kind of stopping us from doing the things that uh, where you know we talked about earlier, where we know pretty much a train wreck <laughs> is coming at some point. That's um, the, the the inflation. The inflation is stopping us from creating more inflation. That's what you're right. saying. Well, it is. We, it, yeah, uh, it is. How it's how, how uh, right? What do you want us to do? Keep doing it so it just gets worse. Well, no. <laughs> Take that's, rates back that, to zero and send everybody a big fat is a, check and right. yes, no. <laughs> so what about what about you, Jamal? Give give us your uh, prediction. Is now worse than the financial crisis, 
no, you know, no, structure no, no, of the economy no. and all that stuff. No, nope. and then where nope, are we going? No, 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 no. Financial crisis was infinitely worse. Financial crisis. We I were agree. worried about the uh, the entire the the banking system breaking, the monetary system breaking. We were very much in uncharted territory. Uh, today we have uh, unemployment is uh, still in a very good place, which is surprising given that interest rates have gone up uh, so much. Uh, the banks are healthy. Regulations are in fairly good shape. We have uh, a little bit too much inflation, but uh, the Fed has a proven track record of getting that under control. They did it in the 70s and 80s. They're following the same playbook until that fails uh, and things run away, which again could happen, but we haven't. it's premature to think that that's uh, the case. So I think they're going to get inflation under control in uh, you know hopefully a year or two or something like that. I also think that things are, we are the United States of America. There's a lot of, you know, we're still the most dynamic economy in the world. A lot of great businesses here. And I think you're going to see the Dow. Where are we now? 30,000. I think you'll see the Dow between 60 and 75,000 in a decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, uh, there's certainly some policy things that they could do to fix things. Clearly our energy policy is not working. Um, You know, we're, we're seeing problems in Europe and gas prices here. I think they could improve that dramatically that would help inflation and uh you know we've got issues with drug problems and opioids fentanyl the death rate uh, amongst young people i think there's some real problems that they could focus on and and do something about but um, overall i remain optimistic i want to kind of clarify what i was saying too obviously in the middle of the financial crisis it was scary we needed to do some of the things that we we were doing during that period uh, but we just continue to do them. So I was just talking about from a uh, position where we're in fiscally as uh, compared to where we were back then. But we had to do some of the things that we were doing. That was a, that was a scary period of time. Well, very good. There's some great insights. And uh, as quickly as everything has changed in the last 18 months, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 18. And uh, maybe we can have you all back and we'll we'll do this again. What do you think? That sounds great. I, I think I'm, yep. I'm just going to go. Uh, let me add w- one prediction. I think inflation will be lower uh, in 18 months. Fair enough. Mike, yep. any closing thoughts? Let's hope so. Um, my, the closing thoughts are just, I, you know, the, the easy money has been made. Um, you know, we're talking about the market being down roughly 20% when it was up 28% last year. If the Fed continues to tighten, it's going to be a rough couple of years. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see what happens there. But let's hope inflation gets under control because that's, uh, that's going to be a key as uh, determining what they're going to do. Indeed. Well, very good. Walter, you want to you take us home? Yeah, uh, really enjoyed listening to your guys' conversation and uh, so happy and pleased that you can uh, have this open and honest dialogue with one another and that, you know, me and other listeners, we can sit back and just kind of enjoy uh, listening to that expertise go back and forth. So I want to thank you all for uh, contributing to the discussion, the conversation today. And if you're like me and and you're just kind of engrossed in this conversation, but at the same time, maybe like, wow, you know, this is is a lot of stuff. This is a a lot of knowledge and, and you'd be exactly right. 
right. We're talking about a lot of years of if we if we did the old combined experience uh, between these three, we're talking about a lot of years in the markets and in financial planning, helping people prepare for retirement and their financial futures. And there's a lot of value in that. And uh, we're talking about certified financial planners. We're talking about uh, expertise and uh, so many different levels of uh, knowledge in the financial arena. And there's just so much uh, so much helpfulness and value to that. So if you are looking to work on your own financial life and your own financial plan, I mean, sometimes we can look at things like today's show from that macro view, you know, a larger zoomed out picture. But as always with any client, if you come in and you meet with the team, you can have discussions uh, about your particular financial plan. And these theories, these conversations are then adapted and drilled down to you specifically and what helps you plan for your financial future best. And so one way to do that, if you're a listener to Make the Dough Rise, you know this. You can call and get a free 15-minute complimentary review with Brian. See how you can get some clarity around your financial goals uh, that you have and how to help prepare for your future. See if you're a good fit to work with one another. Again, that's a complimentary call with Brian. And you can set that up on livingworth.com by clicking the Book a Call button. Again, that's livingworth.com. Click Book a Call or dial 706-451-9800. That's 706-451-9800. For Brian and Mike and Jamal, I'm Walter. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this episode. I have a feeling we'll be revisiting these conversations again in the future. Another great roundtable in the books with the fellas. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Make the Dough Rise. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.